Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week, we are going to be investigating the internet of packaging. There's something that unites the online experience and the brick and mortar experience. There's billions of them, and it's the humble cardboard box. One of the biggest players in this market is Westrock, and we're going to be talking to the VP of Connected Solutions, John Dwyer. He's a great guy. I think you'll really, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. The Mr. Beacon Ambient IoT Podcast is sponsored by Williot, bringing intelligence to every single thing. Well, John, thanks very much for for joining us on the on the podcast. I uh, I really appreciate you taking time out. I'm glad to be here. This is a, a terrific opportunity, Steve, and I, I love the podcast and love the things that you're doing. Very good. Well. Uh, I am excited about you being on the podcast uh, because, I mean, this is all about the convergence of the digital and physical worlds, uh, breaking down the barriers and building links between the world of AI and chat GPT and the awesome power of the cloud and the the physical things in our world. And your company, Westrock, makes an awful lot of physical things <laughs> and... Uh, I um, became aware of your company. Probably a lot of people don't know it, so we'll give you a chance to introduce it in a second. Um, but I, I started going to these conferences and uh, a lot of pioneering work around uh, in-store experiences was being done by this company that makes cardboard boxes. Uh, and uh, so uh, you have the catbird seat, um, uh, an amazing vantage point, uh, of um, you know this these these boxes which are made in their millions and billions, and all of a fascinating cocktail of digital to physical technologies. And you know we haven't spoken at any length before, but I know that your firm have been uh, experimenting with and implementing solutions with. QR codes, barcodes, um, um, digital watermarks, uh, NFC, RFID, and of course, 
our paths crossed with the partnership with uh, Westrock and and Williot. So you're also in the world of of, of Bluetooth. So um, I'd love you to uh, explain a bit about uh, Westrock, its scale and the business, and then we'll go on and ask you a, a, a bit about your business, which is essentially the digital solutions piece, which is all about these tendons joining the the muscle of the cloud with the bones of the physical world. But who, who is Westrock for the for the people who may not have heard of you before? Sure. So uh, Westrock is um, one of the largest packaging companies in the world. Um, we were uh, created in 2015, a merger between uh, Mead West Vaco Corporation, uh, which uh, has had some consumer business, um, the kind of, kind of a, a broad uh, a consumer focusing paper business, and then Rock 10 Corporation, which is a very traditional corrugated company. Um, so Mead West Vaco and Rock 10 became West Rock. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, merged those things. Uh, we, we divested of some assets that were uh, plastic related. And so one of the first things that you'll notice about Westrock is that we are all about um, sustainability and fiber uh, replacing plastic. Uh, so uh, uh, corrugated boxes, paper containers, um, the dividers that are in a case of wine. Um, we have a global paper division that doesn't make um, you know, the coffee cups at your favorite uh, coffee uh, shop but we make the paper that the cups are made out of. So we supply those, uh, those oh. uh, manufacturers of that product. So we're, we're, we're broadly divided into um, three major businesses, which are a corrugated container, consumer packaging, and global paper. We have a distribution business. Um, we also have an automation business, which plays into um, the uh, internet of packaging and physical to digital world that we, that we discuss. Um, and, we kind of sit in the middle of all that as an enterprise player. Oh, and I can't forget recycling. So I always think of recycling as our superpower. Um, we are mm -hmm. the only large integrated packaging uh, manufacturer in North America that actually uh, recycles product as well. So we have, uh, uh, we have a significant amount of materials that we recover from manufacturers uh, and distribution centers and retailers. And then that drives our mills, which create more recycled content. So it, it really, it's really an, a, a critical part of our business. Um, and so um, as part of our corrugated business, you mentioned uh, we do a lot of work in merchandising materials. Uh, so we have one of the largest merchandising companies in North America. Uh, and we started experimenting in digital in that space. We thought it was really interesting uh, to put a, a, a display for a consumer product goods company on the floor in a retailer and start to measure things like what is the, um, uh, what's the foot traffic? Um, how does this location perform versus another location? Um, we actually started testing Bluetooth sensors in these locations about five years ago. Mm. And, and so we were using those to identify, um, when was the display set up? So if the, uh, if it's a seasonal display and it's for the holidays, and it's to set on a Friday or Saturday, we were actually able to start reporting and saying, oh, look, that didn't set until the following week. Well, you miss a lot of sales. And so you can start to, you can start to um, solution around that. How do we yeah. make sure that we get better compliance? So that was the thing we were measuring with. Um, and, and that became just a really interesting test bed for us to digitize physical things, enable them to be more visible, uh, more compliant, uh, uh, more 
part of a, a you know a digital supply chain, uh, and that was really the very first elements I would say of our digital journey at Westrock. So these are merchandising displays, and you had a Bluetooth beacon that you uh, built into it. Is that right? We did, yeah, for sure. And so there, there were um, uh, we actually invested in a company back in the day that had um, some uh, uh, bridges that you would um, uh, that could be installed into the ceiling, mm-hmm. and it created essentially a mesh network within the store. And whenever it would see the unique identifier on that, we would know that that was laundry detergent versus cookies or crackers or whatever the content of that display was and validate that it was compliant from a timing perspective and in the right location. Um, And then also, how long was the display up? If the idea was that it was set for a month and was gone after two weeks, why was that? So we're starting to accumulate data about what should happen versus what really happened and what was the impact on sales um you know the the overall you know brand exposure all the things all the reasons why you do merchandising in store we now had a better insight into what was really happening that's a great application and i often think about the marketing people that work uh incredibly hard to create the the uh, the artwork and the campaigns around these things and then it doesn't work and you know you can imagine all the finger pointing that goes on oh, it was the wrong color or the call to action was wrong but maybe it just was never deployed <laughs> and it was never bring up a great point we've actually tested two displays side by side Oh. Um, different colors, different graphics, and then use the sensors to identify um, which one ran out of product for uh, fastest. Uh, how, you know, how did it resonate with the consumer? Were we getting more foot traffic or not in a certain location? Um, so there, there really were um, amazing things. And now we've taken that to the next level with digital displays, which have um, you know LED screens uh, that can uh, generate a message. Uh, it can be distance related, so. Uh, at 15 feet, you get a generic message. As you get to within five feet, you get a different message. And within two feet, maybe you get a coupon that as you start to drive people closer to the product, then you start to incent them to take action and do something that uh, that you like them to do. And so this is essentially the work of your your group, the, your VP of Digital Solutions. Is that? Uh, can you describe a bit about what your mandate is and uh, what the boundaries are of what you do within Westrock. And just before we do that, I, I just want to give people a sense of the scale. Like how many employees work at, oh, at Westrock sure. and how many uh, 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 items do you actually produce? Because the numbers are big. <laughs> yeah, the numbers are big. Um, you know, somewhere between 70 and 80 billion things a year are manufactured by Westrock um, or the materials that we manufacture are used to make things. Mm-hmm. Um and we have 50,000 employees plus uh, globally. We have 300 locations all over the world. We have a large footprint in North America, um, but also big in Mexico, Brazil, uh, India uh, for manufacturing and all throughout uh, the EU um, as well as uh, China. So a pretty broad uh, footprint from a manufacturing perspective. And uh, we, we don't own forests, but we help manage forest land. Um, we plant mm-hmm. uh, two trees for every tree that we utilize. Uh, people get funny about trees. Uh, mm-hmm. And 
we think it a little differently as a crop. Uh, so just as you raise corn or wheat and you harvest that and, and replant it next year, we do the same thing with trees. The time frame is much longer though. Um, so we're actually working with landowners and stewards of forests to help manage those forests to maintain health. Um, but to grow the capacity for materials, uh, it's important to have, uh, as you make fiber-based product, to have what we call virgin product, which comes from trees. But it's all the more important to recycle and bring that fiber back. Um, one of the things I love about corrugated packaging, about 92% of it gets recycled, which mm -hmm. is amazing. I mean, when you take a step back, in the world that we live in today, what do 92% of people do uh, regularly? It's probably not voting or wearing a seatbelt or not texting while driving. And yet we've created this, in, this incredible environment where people understand that you can take a corrugated box and put it in your recycling bin and it most likely gets made into something else. I, I, one of the things I just love about this circular economy concept. And how... Um... What is reuse like? Because uh, it seems like you have a, a tremendous advantage in terms of recycling. Uh, you know, you can get cynical when you see the recycling marks because, you know, sometimes the recyclers don't exist. They don't know what to do with it. But it seems like you guys have got the cardboard recycling. Uh, we can have confidence that that actually does happen, which is which is really cool. But obviously, the the only thing better than recycling is reusing and that's where I, I think some people who are environmentally focused have a question, you know, the age old question we get asked every day, paper or plastic. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and paper always feels better. So I tend to go for the paper. Uh, but, uh, um, what is, what is most, I guess there's two questions, you know, what are your views about the pros and cons in terms of uh, sustainability of those two uh, materials uh, and uh, and also, to what extent do you see cardboard boxes being reused, which is you know obviously requires less energy than recycling? Sure. Yeah. So cardboard boxes do get reused uh, depending upon the application. We see in the produce space um, uh, cardboard boxes being reused, and you can manufacture boxes in a way um, with uh, you know double walled corrugate or different coatings on them that make them more durable. Um, think of a route a driver delivering snacks to a store. Um, they're filling orders at a distribution center. These are lightweight products typically. So they're going to use those over and over again. Um, big retailers at the distribution center level use corrugated containers that they move back and forth. Um, because it's heavily recycled, there's value associated with it. Um, so what's the comparative? Look, uh, we replace um, uh, as often as we can plastic with paper. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think the the challenge with the plastics industry, actually recycling rates are going down in plastic because there are so many flavors of plastic that are out there, um, which is what makes it difficult. If, if you were to say, hey, everything needs to be made of PET and we're going to make recycled PET and we can use that over and over again, um, then I think you have a real story that you can start to tell around that. Um, but unfortunately over the last five years, and I'll just, I'll recite what I, uh, what, what I read. I think this came from NPR. We've gone from about 9% of plastic being recycled to about 5%. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, it's because of the, 
diversity and disparity of plastics that are out there. The beauty of fiber is it's one thing. Uh, and so the, the ability to take, uh, you know, wood based fiber and recover it, uh, makes it much easier. Um, I do like reuse. Um, you know, the challenge around reuse is that it requires cleaning, um, you know, particularly when you're talking about food and produce and things like that. Um, you know, now there's a lot of buzz around microplastics, you know, everywhere. Uh, you know, I, uh, it's an important industry. Uh, there, there, there is a, there's a real place for plastics, uh, mm -hmm. in our industry in terms of, you know, what we think is cleaner and, and more sustainable. Uh, certainly I think fiber, uh, you know, wins in that uh, analysis. Um, but there is a place for plastics, um, performance plastics do things that fiber can't. Um, and I think we need to just balance what, what's the right amount of fiber versus the right amount of plastic and how do we manage those recycling streams to have the, you know, the less, the least impact that we can on people and planet. Amen. Um, the, the, one of the things I have really enjoyed about getting to know Westrock a little bit is, um, what it's one of the, it's a great example of, we take products for granted and, um, we, you open up the lid and you realize there's just so much more <laughs> to this simple thing of a cardboard box than anyone ever thought of. And I, one of the things I love is the machinery that you guys use to construct a cardboard box. Uh, it's for anyone that enjoys any kind of technology or mechanical things or gets a delight in engineering, seeing one of those machines work and then seeing it add a digital ID, uh, you know, whether it's an RFID or, or, or one of our ambient IoT pixels. I mean, it's about, you know, there isn't someone kind of putting the label on. It's all, it's all happening tremendously quickly with these amazing um, machines. What is your involvement? Presume, do you make the machines or you buy the machines or you help design them? What's the role of Westrock and those incredible machines? So we make, we make our own machinery. And again, we're the only um, large uh, integrated corrugator that makes packaging machinery. Um, and there's a real reason behind that, right? When you think about the complexity of uh, receiving materials, uh, forming cartons or cases, um, and the, um, you know, having one point of contact, having somebody responsible, um, it's very easy in machinery applications um, and you, you see this in, in machinery and software. Um, if those two things don't play nice together, uh, the software manufacturer points at the machinery person and vice versa, right? And so we wanted Westrock to be, have sole ownership of the marriage between form and functionality, mm -hmm. right? So taking this corrugated container and there's some trends that are occurring right now that I think are important when we talk about machinery. One is, is that, um, if you looked at an e-commerce box that arrives on your, uh, on your porch today versus what it was three or four years ago, it would be very common to get a very large box with a very small item in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that was because, uh, companies, uh, e-commerce, uh, companies want to have as few SKUs of product to manage as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and that means that sometimes you get an odd shaped product that you know, doesn't fit in a small box and has to go in a bigger box. Um, so that's a problem, right? It's more the carbon footprint of that type of packaging is horrible. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you're seeing today is more packaging that is fit to purpose, fit to size. Uh, and that happens on machines, right? So um, you, uh, we actually make machines now that can look at a package or a product uh, as oddly shaped as a basketball and create a box that fits that basketball. Um, so the machine cuts, forms, shapes, you know, puts all these things together. Uh, and the benefit long-term, lower shipping costs, uh, lower, you know, less packaging material that goes inside of it. So when we talk about paper versus plastic, you see the the plastic bubbles that go inside of packaging. You know, anything, that that's expensive. And if we can do something to reduce the amount of material used, uh, you know, we think that's a benefit. Well, as we start to think about what is this? This is mass customization now. Yes. So then we start to think about what are other things that we can customize about that product that make it unique? Well, of course, the ability to put uh, a Williot pixel into the mm-hmm. package. Um, and, and by the way, putting something inside a corrugate box is hard to do when the box is already formed. Mm-hmm. So our ability to um, add the sensors while the box is being formed make sure that we can put it in an optimized location that the the sensor is oriented in the, in the mm-hmm. way that you know gives it the best ability to be read and we think you know if you really care about the temperature or light exposure or you know uh, humidity that all happens inside the box not outside mm-hmm. the box um, mm-hmm. so we we really started thinking about and and, and honestly the the uh, the William model really drove us in this direction to say if customers care about product, then getting sensors closest, whether it be beef or salmon or other types of protein, um, you know, whether it's uh, you know uh, electronics that might be um, uh, impacted by humidity, we have a customer now that has very heavy liquid product that they store in a warehouse in Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. and if they don't rotate their goods, the humidity causes the corrugate to collapse. So. You know, starting to understand what are the the problems, and and we always say in our group, you know, fall in love with the problem, not the the solution. So we're very focused on what is it that our customers are challenged with, and then what are this? What's the toolkit that we've assembled with our great partners uh, that can help us solve around that? So automation, mass customization, and then you know, two things that that we you know we really focus on. One is we call this process born digital. Mm-hmm. So creating a package with a unique identity. Um, and at the same time, creating a digital twin, uh, y- y- again, you know, this better than I, if a product has a sensor in it, um, there still are recalls. And I just heard this from one of our partners, uh, yesterday, the number one cause of recall is mismatch between the, the product itself and the sensor uh, what what we think the sensor is attached to. Mm. So creating that um, kind of indelible link between product and sensor is incredibly important. Um, and the complexity of that expands, you know, multiple fold. Uh, so you think I, I can make these packages and ship them to a customer. Um, or that customer might have six manufacturing lines now they have to invest in CapEx. They need three or four people to manage those machines. Um, and guess what? All of those pixels look the same. Mm-hmm. How do I know that I got the right pixel on orange juice versus tea or burgers versus chicken nuggets? You know, all of these things 
the the you know the, this old you know uh, metaphor is is used over and over again because it's true. Garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. So we know that creating a digital twin of a product um, that functions accurately and efficiently throughout the supply chain all starts with the linkage, uh, you know, and the hundred percent verification that those two things are linked together. And that ties into automation and vision systems and, you know, all the different things that, you know, we really have some expertise around. Uh, that's been one of the most exciting parts of this journey, Steve, is not that, not that you can digitize a package, um, and create a digital twin, you know, from something in the physical world, but how do you scale it? Mm. Right. I, I could spend an entire career running pilots and POCs and, you know, proving that there's value associated here, but scaling it, that's a thing. I mean, that is really a challenge in a world where there's 4 trillion or so consumer goods in the world that, you know, we aspire to give these digital identities to. Um, and so that, that's really the area that we focus on and where automation is kind of at the core. Yeah, it's amazing work. It's a it's an inspiring challenge. Um, RFID industry at the moment, I, I would guess somewhere between thirty to forty billion units, which is a lot. But the addressable market, uh, and you know, you guys, I've seen images of Walmart boxes, and you work with some of the biggest online and brick and mortar retailers in the world. So you are right at the point. No one understands scale better than, than you guys in terms of uh, packaging. But I, um, the thing that excites me is this ability to, to really take this good idea and put it in the hands of everybody. I think in many ways, us te- we technologists uh, are frustrated rock stars. We want, we want people to hear our music. You know, we want right. to hit. We don't just want to, I mean, we do want to make interest, you know, the interesting creation, the beautiful creation, there's a satisfaction in that. But but uh, having people use what you make and design every day is is where it's at, and you have the ability to to uh, to do that. And you know, one of the things that I appreciated and really thought about is this idea of taking something. And I don't want to make this all about William. A lot of this applies to all sorts of auto ID technology. But you, For sure. you take this thing that seems very small; it's the size of a postage stamp. How can we make it even cheaper? Well, what if we strip away 50% of the packaging of the tag and actually start embedding the the chip and the antenna in the corrugate, and then we do away with all of the the paper and adhesives and uh, light blocking material and all that other stuff. And that's that's really how we get this down from, you know, not just less than 10 cents, but very small numbers of pennies. And once you do that then your ability to make a difference increases exponentially. You can start to bring online all so, so many things, uh, uh, food and uh, all the products that get uh, delivered, and you can have a more efficient supply chain, which has less waste in it, less wa- loss, less, less theft, um, and it's all goodness in terms of channeling resources in a, in a productive area. I do want you to talk about the um, eight-sided cardboard box, if you know what I mean. So, you know, we all think, I guess there's more sides than that, but um, basically we're used to these rectangular boxes and they have a front and a back and a left side and a right side. 
but you came up with the idea of having some extra sides. Tell, tell us about that. Well, it, it kind of ties into what you just described about um, additional efficiency. So um, the more corners you add to something, the stronger it becomes, uh, mm -hmm. in, 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 particularly in terms of weight that it can carry. Um, so the, the eight-sided container um, actually allows us to remove fiber from a product. Um, so, you know, just as, as you talked about re removing costs of materials, um, we can actually make things more sustainable by removing fiber, adding more corners allows you to do that. And for things like rounds in particular, um, so, uh, you know, uh, jugs of oil or cleaning solutions or, uh, hamburger patties, you know, another mm -hmm. thing that where the, the corner is actually wasted space, uh, in many, in many cases. Um, so we call it a miter corner. The other thing that we found out early on is that if we put a sensor in a miter corner, it actually makes it about 30% more discoverable. Um, you, you know this, the, um, you need air gap, uh, mm -hmm. particularly if products are dense. So the, the, the enemy, uh, we always say of sensors is, is moisture content and metal. Um, and so creating that air gap, and if you think of an eight sided container, those edges never touch. Um, so there's no shadowing. It, it becomes a very efficient way uh, to make the package more functional. You can reduce fiber, potentially offset some of the costs of the sensors. Um, but but I will say, you know, this is one of the challenges in our business is that um, the sensor is viewed as a cost. Um, and, and it's part of a package that, uh, you know, uh, we have a, a, every one of our customers has very savvy buyers that are um, uh, trained to create a bunch of apples to apples comparisons to things. And so, you know, we're very focused that a smart package is significantly different from a standard package. Um, and by moving upstream, you gain efficiencies, but oftentimes the value is generated downstream at a 3PL or a distribution center or at a retailer um, where you, you, you uh, disaggregate and reaggregate product and you need to be able to understand what those aggregations look like. So the, the, um, easy to say, hard to do, you know, we, we, we try to focus more on value than cost, but we're continually looking at ROI calculations around smart packaging. Um, because I, I think you can get caught up and say, um, this box costs a dollar and now this smart box costs a dollar and 10 cents. And so, mm -hmm. It, th that's 10 cents more than what I spent before. But the reality is it can help you reduce your waste by 30%. Um, it might reduce the time uh, that it takes to look for goods in a warehouse by hundreds of man hours over the course of a year. Um, you can load a truck faster. Um, you could have less uh, on time and full penalties because you're, you're fulfilling orders more accurately. So I, I you know, well, we love to think about how do we make things more efficient. I also, um, you know, caution, uh, you know, everybody we work with to say, look, cost is a thing. And, you know, as we want to scale, we have to think about what that overall cost is. Um, but there's a total cost of ownership that, um, you know, takes into consideration all this value. Oh, and by the way, what if I can help you reduce your EPR obligations by validating at the recycling center that 90% of your product is getting recycling so or recycled so that that uh, mm -hmm. packaging tax becomes less onerous so we're 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 working on the physical to digital but also what is the value 
of of uh, visible packaging in the supply chain that kind of speaks for itself. Um, the the other thing I would I would really say is important is interoperability. Um, I, this is a little funny thing I always say, but IoT, which most people are fulfill, uh, familiar with, is home automation. And the reason it doesn't work very well is because Siri and Alexa are not BFFs. They don't speak to each other. And so you've got all of these linear IoT solutions. Look, I have a smart doorbell and an oven and a TV and, you know, all these, and none of them talk to each other. You know, very, very difficult to get coordination. In the world of internet of packaging, interoperability is the absolute key. It's what I love about what you all are doing with, with the Willia Pixel and the, the open platform, you know, making sure that it's as, as accessible, the technology is accessible. And, and so standards are important. Interoperability is important. And we want to make things visible, not just to us, but to any place they are uh, in, a, in an import facility, in a, uh, uh, you know, in a ship, on a plane. That's where the power of this becomes really self-evident. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with all of the things that you just said. Um, uh, any thoughts on how do we get the, the buyers over the, cause the buyer is going to fail, isn't he? We're asking the buyer to say, oh, uh, yeah, that, uh, uh, that dollar package is now a dollar and 10 cents. They look really bad. And yet the, the potential of having visibility up and down the supply chain of that container, we could halve the carbon footprint, which means halving the cost. It means less capital employed right. in, in goods. It means uh, potentially dynamic routing, pre-kitting of deliveries with smaller trucks driving short. I mean, you could be saving a mass of money up and down the supply chain. How do you get the, the buyer out of this bind where he, he just looks like he failed, um, and the, um, uh, but the result is potentially a win for his company's profits and the environment. And uh, how do you get over that? I'm, I'm just still trying to figure it out myself. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, so, so the buyers are doing their jobs. You know, um, you know we're, we're starting to tell, um, you know, basically to your point, we're telling her that the sun rises in the West now and sets in the East, right? It just, everything that, that he or she's been trained to know is different. Um, so I think it requires a level of sophistication. It's going to be driven from the top down. Um, and it's incumbent upon us to lean in. Look, we're running, we're running pilots and POCs for our customers with where we're absorbing the cost. 
to learn what we need to learn to really understand um you know is the are the assumptions that we're making true and are the problems that we thought we were solving the actual problems that exist in the real world um so i think what's incumbent upon us are to create these case studies um to have open collaboration uh to share the results and to your point walk things all the way through the supply chain because there's value in product being recycled there's value in product being reused um, there's value in understanding, uh, you know, are we mitigating recalls? The average cost of a recall, I think the last time I saw is $30 million. Uh, so it, we need to just start thinking holistically. Um, it requires kind of bold leadership. We talked about this earlier. Um, you know, you have to fight for what is right. And I, I think in almost every, every area where you add serialization, and you uniquely identify a thing, uh, value comes out of that process that is both anticipated and unanticipated. Mm. So the more the more muscles that we start to flex in the real world and understand what those unanticipated values are, and then create um, you know storytelling. Right. This is all about data and stories and being able to share those stories. Um, one of the things that we're really excited about, you talked about 30 or 40 billion RFID-enabled products. Mm-hmm. We know that there's a tipping point as well. And I've heard that it's you know, maybe around 30% in a manufacturing facility. If you have to segregate and you know, run 30% of your product run one way and 70% the other way, it actually becomes cheaper and easier to run all of it in the same way. And so we think that um, building... Uh, you know, whether it's in the quick serve restaurant space where we're starting to see a lot of traction in retail, uh, in protein, uh, you know, all of these areas where you have high value seafood is a great example. Look, when, when seafood gets wasted, you don't just grow more, right? It is a a resource that is not easily renewable. Mm -hmm. So we're really trying to focus on telling stories in areas that really matter. And then to your point, migrating that throughout the, the supply chain because knowing where one thing is or two things is, you know, doesn't matter. I always say, if if I'm ready to leave the house and I have my phone, but I don't have my keys, I'm not going anywhere. I need everything yes. to be together and organized to to be able to make that trip. So that that's kind of the way that we think about it. And we need we need partners, we need storytellers, and we need data to really validate that all these things are true. I... I Again, agree, and I think stories that resonate at the most senior levels in organizations. If I look at our biggest projects, then there's visibility from the CEO, the COO, the EVP is the owner of of a visibility platform, and that's what it takes until it just becomes a thing that everyone does, and then 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 we we see the whole thing really exploding. We've run out of time, I'm afraid. Um, I have another two hours uh, of stuff that I want to talk with you about. So uh, maybe you should come back again and we can talk about all the other technologies that you've had sight of and the lessons that you've learned. But uh, John, we have another part of this conversation we're going to move on to, uh, which is your career and uh, how you get to uh, the catbird seat in this uh, amazing company and uh, and, a, and a little bit on the on the music front that we always talk about. But, but thanks for... Uh, for talking to us uh, on, on this part of the conversation. Steve, this has been absolutely delightful. Look forward to doing it again. So John, um, 
I think you know. I, I think you've got an amazing job in an amazing company. Um, what? How did your career lead you up to to getting this role? If someone else wanted your job, um, assuming at some point you'll hang up the your spurs, uh, you know, what, what's the prescription for uh, for doing what you do? It's a great question, um, and it, 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 rarely in a career do you feel like every job that you had previous to your current role directly connected somehow to what it is uh, that you're doing. And I've been very fortunate in that regard. Um, I started out, I've been in packaging my whole career in one way, shape, or form. And I started out um, early on working for a printer that was in um, what they defined as promotions. So utilizing serialized codes to identify winners amongst a group of packaging. Uh, so think of, uh, you know, giveaways on packaged food, things like that. I work very closely in the beverage industry, uh, working on uh, Super Bowl type promotions. And so I, we got very uh, involved into uniquely identifying subsets within a much larger group of products that had value. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was step one. But, and just to be clear, the winners are the win- winners of people in a contest or winners in the AB testing sense of the word? So actually just random winners buy a 24 pack of a beverage and there's a special code inside where there's some type of a, of a ticket or a redemption piece. Okay. Uh, we would insert um, serialized winners into the, you know, the, the general population. And that's how you would find out. Um, I think McDonald's monopoly games like that. Yeah. So really kind of a game of chance. And that was how I started my career, working in this really interesting space, working with agencies, uh, retired FBI agents that would come to our facility and oversee uh, kind of the things that we were doing. And it and it helped me understand that packaging can have more value over and above just carrying product and displaying brand information. Um, and I would say that was kind of the germination of this idea in my mind that uh, if you can make every package unique, uh, something interesting could be a result of that. Um, I, I took the the next step. Then was um, I started working in the space of um, uh, uh, transaction cards. So think gift cards, uh, Visa, Mastercard, any of the branded American Express mm-hmm. Discover. That was even taking it to another level. Now every every unique ID related to every other. So now just in, uh, not just having unique identifiers in a small subset, but everyone was unique and they were related to each other. So think of these familial parent-child relationships. Um, you actually created a data plan that you produced everything to. So you started off with a million records and each um, uh, you know pallet had 100,000, each mm-hmm. case had 1,000, each tray had 100. You know, there were 10 packs uh, of 10 in each 100 we would build the data plan first and then manufacture it to the data plan. And, and that got me really thinking about, wow, data is powerful and organizing data in a way that links together uh, branded materials, creative relationships, almost like the idea of um, Russian nesting dolls, mm. where you have large amount of data that is sub, uh, you know, subsets, smaller and smaller and smaller, down to eaches. And then knowing where each is 
in its journey and and potentially in relationship to others. So, and these cards again, what were they? The, the gift cards or uh, a gift card? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And because they're so valuable, you need to be really sure where they are in that packaging hierarchy uh, because you're sending that they're presumably distributed and then broken up and uh exactly and, right and these things are worth a lot so okay they, they can be worth a lot and there's a lot of fraud in that space so okay. so the, so the uh, authentication process uh we work closely in multi-factor authentication um so i i think of that as phase two of my career was taking unique data and now applying it with purpose where everything has a unique identification um, and that was, you know, kind of my career, two thirds of my career prior to joining Westrock. Amazing. And then what, what brought you to Westrock? So, um, I, I came to Westrock actually as part of an acquisition. Um, I went to work for a, another company that was acquired by Westrock. I knew that that was happening. Uh, and it, it was interesting to me to understand how a company of Westrock size and scale could take this kind of unique identification and 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 scale it uh, throughout an enterprise uh you know the, the, we today Westrock makes um 60 million corrugated cases a day mm -hmm. uh, we make tens of billions of things globally that are uh, in consumers hands and travel through supply chains and protect goods and then are recycled and so the the notion of a circular economy is, is really interesting to me. Um, the ability to use, uh, utilize recycling in a measurable way um, as uh, ESG goals and extended producing responsibility become more impactful to both CPGs and retailers. And I felt like there was really a, a role I could play within this organization to help make, um, uh, to lift and shift some of the things that I learned from packaging and transaction cards and sweepstakes and gaming and things like that. And finding a way to make every package that Westrock makes unique in a way, um, in a very large scalable enterprise, it was a, just a fascinating challenge for me. It is. So that's kind of one dimension of this career journey. But then there's, you know, the other dimension, which is your VP of, of an important group. How do you get to be a VP? Is there like signature achievements or mentors or what, what's the, if someone is watching this, who's uh, starting their career and they're like, I want to get to the top. How, what's the prescription? Yeah. I, I, I don't know that my path is prescriptive, but all of those things, Steve, I read, so I had some phenomenal mentors. Um, I, I think the thing I would say to young people, and I say this to my uh, kids as they're entering the work world is that um, you need to have a healthy, uh, a healthy respect, uh, and you know, for your employer, um, you have to stand up for yourself. Um, and I think that there's a certain element of fearlessness, right? I mean, it it, it is, um, you know, sometimes I, I think my job is fighting every day, right? I mean, uh, making sure we we have 300 locations globally, uh, and we you know we were we grew through acquisition. So we have all these different um, bits and pieces that are pulled together into an enterprise. Um, and now under the leadership of our current CEO, the initiative that we have, Path to One. And I would say if you need to fight for what you really believe in, um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, certainly not in an antagonistic way, 
But I think if you want to achieve a level within an organization uh, similar to what I've done, um, it requires uh, you know self-confidence. You need to be a great communicator. You need to be inclusive um, and willing to work as part of a team. Uh, I think those are all really important attributes. And at the end of the day, um, you know, really look out for yourself. And when you see opportunities, seize those with both hands. Uh, yeah. I, I think the the biggest thing that holds people back is fear. Um, we we actually had a um, a big sales meeting in December, and we had a guest speaker who said something that was really impactful to me. And he talked about FOMO, fear of missing out, mm-hmm. and FOMU, which is he he identified as fear of messing up, and so many people are afraid that they're going to be exposed when they make mistakes. Mm. Um, and you are. But what happens, what you do when you make a mistake is what really, I think, identifies your potential and your leadership uh, and, and really just you know how you're able to respond to that, I think, is really important. Um, so I, I think you identified all the things that mm-hmm. can get you to a role, uh, into a leadership style role. Uh, but you have to keep you know, reinventing that to make sure that um, you continue to add value in whatever role you're in in an organization. Well, that's true, because as you rise to the top, then there's kind of the Darwinian pressures are greater. Aren't they? The, 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 uh, the, you, you got there because you're willing to take risks, but those risks are real. There's like, uh, there's a lot of, uh, it's a revolving door. Uh, it can be. I mean, obviously some executives, uh, I mean, you've had a long uh, career at, uh, at Westrock, but uh, it's not, easy. It's not like, oh, you get the keys to the castle and then that's it. Well, no. And, and you look, if you have self-awareness as an individual, um, you're kind of always fighting imposter syndrome. You know, do, do, I, do I, did I really earn this role? Do I earn it yeah. every day? Um, yeah. And I, I think a certain element of that is healthy, right? Yeah. I mean, I think every day you need to think about what you're contributing. Um, are you still pushing as hard as you can uh, and contributing as much as you can? And, and th- those are things that always strike me. I mean, I, I, I wake up in the morning ready for the day, but I always think about, well, you know, what can I do to make myself better and my team better? Uh, mm. And I just think it's an important attribute for anyone in business. Very good. Well, um, come to the part of the show where the music choices get asked about. Um, have you, you haven't had long, but have you had a chance to come up with three songs that have meaning to you? Yeah, I, I have. Um, so the first one um, I would say is uh, I Would Walk 500 Miles by The Proclaimers. Oh, um, classic. It, it, it's a song my wife and I absolutely love. It's uh, It gets us up and moving, and uh, you know, whenever we hear it, it's really energizing. Um, and yeah. I just love it. I love that the, uh, the, the Proclaimers are twins, which I think is fascinating in the way that they perform together. So I would say that would be my first one. And it's a simple song, isn't it? And it's not like this super high producer. It's basically about very gutsy, something very Scottish about the way they sing it as well. Not just the accent, but the you know the the the, the grit. You know, I, I think it. I think it's very gritty. It's very real. Um, and I think you know, my, my wife and I um, have been married for uh, nearly thirty years. Um, and I think that notion of I would walk 500 miles really resonates with us. It's, mm. um, you know, it's about a journey and the willingness to do things for each other, which I think is, is kind of cool about that song. Amazing. Yeah. And what's very, next? Um, so this is a family song, uh, and I didn't know where, uh, this came from, but 
uh, Take On Me by AHA. Oh, uh, yeah. was a big video song. And um, th- there was a summer, I remember, we were traveling a lot in the car with all four of our sons. Um, and they all, we get to the point where we were all screaming at the top of our lungs, singing this song. And it was something that uh, if if you were disengaged, you know, the brothers would make sure that, you know, they, everybody was involved in it. And so that's a song that is very much um, kind of ingrained in our family. And um, it again, it's fun. It's high energy and something that, uh, you know, kind of forced us all to be engaged. Oh, I love it. No sitting at the back in in playing your Nintendo, whatever, whilst that's going on. No, we have a, actually have a great video of my one son literally playing uh, a Game Boy and his brother elbowing him to make sure that he participates in the song. So uh, it, it's one that uh, has a lot of meaning for our family. It's just fun. That's great. Uh, yeah, it's like one of the first, one of those early MTV videos that captured Absolutely. people's imagination. Yeah, I, I think the, the the visual piece of it was appealing, along as the the music very easy to sing along and participate in. Very good. And your last choice? So my last choice um, is more of a classic, uh, "Fly Me to to the Moon" by Frank Sinatra. Um, um, and and this is one. Uh, so when uh, our our first son to get married got got married, he is a um, is a pianist, and so he um, he started off their first dance playing the piano. Uh, to fly me to the moon, and then it morphed into the, you know the DJ playing that version of it, um, wow. and that was the, the first dance he had with his wife, and it was just it was so moving. And oh. uh, so anyway, it just uh, th- that's a song that always every time I hear it, I have great memories associated with it, and that uh, was really a kind of a cool moving experience. I, I feel quite moved just hearing about it. It's, yeah. So that that is awesome. I would love to have uh, seen that segue. That's very cool. Yeah, we, we didn't know he was going to do it. And um, when he sat down at the piano and started to play and, you know, kind of the, it again, it just morphed into their first dance. It was really, really incredible and something that my family treasures. Very good. Well, John, thanks for spending time with us on the, on the podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, and thank you too. This has been super. So that was my conversation with John. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, if you did then please don't forget to subscribe don't forget to tell your friends and i look forward to seeing you next time 